So good afternoon. My name is Stephen Mullen. I'm one of the consultants that work in the kids' hospital in Belfast. And I come from a paediatric background and have subspecialised in peds emergency. So although I um, can't boast some of the charm, charisma and good looks of our interventional colleagues, I hope to be able to keep you entertained while we walk you through some of the key topics surrounding paediatric trauma. So the objectives we have, we're going to try and keep specific to the topic. So what can you do while you're waiting on that retrieval team to come? We're going to talk a little bit about paediatric trauma and also adolescent trauma, which is something that can sometimes be neglected in paediatric conferences. We're going to base this on three cases that I've been involved in as a clinician. So the first case is handed over to you from the pre-hospital crew in the form of an ASH ICE. Now most of us will be familiar with this acronym, but for those that aren't, it is essentially the S bar of trauma, a way in which we can hand our patient over to that receiving unit. So we have age, sex, history, injury, condition, and estimated time of arrival. So for this case, we have a nine-year-old female who's going downhill at speed on a pedal cycle, falls off and cracks her head off the curb. So she has a loss of consciousness for six minutes. She's picked up by the pre-hospital crew. They note that she has a low GCS and everything else appears relatively normal. And she's going to hit your department in about 10 minutes time. So this is our isolated significant head injury. Now if we look at some of the trauma data out there, you can't really go past the trauma and audit research network that exists in the UK and Ireland. So they're able to give you some idea of what you can expect to come through your A&E department. And this is a publication in the last three or four years that shows that 44% of severe paediatric trauma has an isolated head injury. So one single anatomical site injured, and it's the head that tends to get a little bit more. So for this case, we're going to discuss some of the issues surrounding traumatic brain injury. We're going to talk about C-spine immobilization, and we're going to talk about some of the principles of imaging and paediatric trauma. So if we look at some of our other data that we have at hand, the Americans are a little bit better at collecting epidemiological data, and they're able to tell us that in their A&E departments, about a million kids attend with a head injury. This can cause significant morbidity, and they're also able to give us some great idea of mortality. So for half of the trauma kids that die before they reach A&E, they die as a consequence of a head injury. For a quarter of all paediatric trauma deaths, it's a result of that head injury. So what they're saying is that head injuries are common. We will see them, and they carry a really significant burden in terms of morbidity and mortality. And we need to be able to manage these. We need to be able to look at these kids and stabilize them as best as possible while we're either organizing that time critical transfer ourselves or while we're waiting on that retrieval team to come. And the way in which we manage them is the same principles that you're taught at your very first day of medical school, your A, B, C, D, E approach. For trauma cases, we stick a C in the front of that, which denotes catastrophic hemorrhage. And now this data has come largely from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, which state that if you have a catastrophic hemorrhage, by the time that you've stabilized that airway, the patient's probably already dead. And the reason I put this up here is that for head injuries, they will technically fall into the D part of the algorithm. And you can focus all your attention and all your resources on this to the loss of your A, B, and C principles. And this is to the detriment of your patient. If you do not manage that airway, look after their breathing and their circulation, the patient will have a poor outcome. 
Your job while you're waiting on that retrieval team is to set parameters and to constantly reassess that patient. What else can I do while I'm waiting on that retrieval team to make that patient as stable as possible? How can I prevent secondary brain injury? And this goes back to pathophysiology, a topic in medical school that I knew nothing about, but as a consultant, you have to know a little bit about. And the mechanism of injury, whatever that impact is to that head, there's a piece of dead brain tissue that no matter what you, I, or a neurosurgeon will do, will be able to fix. But surrounding that dead tissue, there is a potentially salvageable area of tissue that if you can get a decent blood supply to, that you can improve that child's morbidity and mortality. And that's what your goal is for these cases. And monitor the patient. The reason I put GCS down here is that AVPU is a very quick and somewhat dirty assessment of a child or young person's neurological status. In my opinion, it lacks the sensitivity to watch those who are slowly drifting or slowly improving. So get your GCS documented as soon as you can and watch the trend with time. Do not simply rely on an AVPU. The same goes for blood pressure. In paediatrics, they can be difficult to do and we can often neglect it. So we get a full set of observations done early and watch it while you're waiting the team to arrive. When we think of airway, we should think about stabilizing the airway as early as possible. If you know that the patient is going to need intubated for CT, for transfer, or for some intervention, then discuss this early. If the patient is stable, it is a much more safer intervention to do rather than to wait till the patient starts to desaturate or destabilize. So have this in discussion with your entire trauma team, but think about doing this intervention in a timely manner. Ketamine is a drug that has been talked about multiple times here before and it's something that I would reiterate. For trauma patients, it seems to be the drug of choice. Now there's always been thoughts that it could cause a spike in your ICP and this has driven a few people to walk away from it. But there's a really nice systematic review published about five years ago now and included 55 kids or two studies which shows that this isn't the case. There was no spike in ICP and actually in some cases the bolus of ketamine was associated with reduction. So a relatively safe drug to use and one that I think that should be, become more into trauma management. Think about your breathing. What parameters are you aiming for these kids? Think about your oxygen levels and your CO2. Beware of hyperventilation and this can happen for multiple reasons. Often a sick trauma patient or any sick pediatric patient causes anxiety your natural reaction is to bag a little bit quicker. You may think that physiologically kids breathe at a rate of 30 to 40, so that is what you should be delivering to these kids. Or else you may believe that prolonged hyperventilation is going to decrease the ICP and is to benefit to these kids, and that's simply not the case. Hyperventilating drives down your CO2, drives your blood to your brain down, and that area of tissue that you're trying to salvage will become hypoxic and die resulting in worse outcomes for these patients. Now there is a role for it acutely whenever you've got the kid that's about to cone or become really unwell in front of you, but that is simply to buy you time to do other investigations or other interventions. Your circulation is key. You need to drive blood into that brain to make sure that it's perfused. So don't neglect it. Or any hypotension is bad for head injury patients and the adult studies would say that one single episode of hypotension is related to doubling to that rate of mortality. So have someone keeping an eye on the main arterial pressure and have a value that you are aimed towards. <coughs> Think about using some form of vasoactive drugs early if need be and watch those OBS. Watch the bradycardia and the hypertensive patient that denotes the Cushing's response. 
I've also seen patients cone who went tachycardic and hypertensive as a result of an adrenaline surge, so be careful with those patients as well. But onward monitoring, think about your C, think about how you're going to increase um, the blood flow to that brain as best as you can. Have agents at hand if you feel that the patient is going to deteriorate or that you're worried about cerebral herniation. Now, the drugs that we would choose would be hypertonic saline or mannitol, and there's probably not a huge amount of difference between the two of them. There is some evidence that hypertonic saline seems to be able to control the ICP slightly better, and personally, I find it an easier dose to remember, so that's the drug that I would use. The systematic review and meta-analysis there show that there's no real difference in terms of function or mortality, but this, these subtle differences um, certainly pushes me into using hypertonic saline. And it's your job really to keep everything normal for that patient, to try and stabilize them and maintain them as best as possible while you're waiting that retrieval team. So look at temperature, get that blood pressure right, think about blood sugar, think about your electrolytes, think about maintaining good oxygenation, about having a normal CO2. If they're cold, warm them up. If they're in pain, give them pain relief. If you've got them with a C-spine collar on, think about loosening to let some of that blood drain. So there's multiple things that you can do to try and prevent that secondary brain injury and stabilize that patient. So there's active things that you should be thinking as a team to try and save this patient. Now the head's obviously connected to the neck, so this is the perfect time to discuss C-spines. And we know children get C-spine injuries. About one in 10 of all spinal injuries occur in the pediatric population. And because of differences in anatomy, they tend to occur at a slightly different junction. So usually C2 and C3, as opposed to C5 and C6 in our adult patients. We also have this principle of Socorro. Now Socorro stands for spinal cord injury without radiological abnormality. So that is your kid who you've done an X-ray or a CT scan on that you can't clinically clear that spine. It's commonly seen in the under sevens and cervical injury more than thoracic, more than lumbar. <laughs> and this is the issue that we have with immobilization. And this is actually lifted from a website and this patient's, but can only be described as some form of neck bracelet uh, or necklace, uh, just shows how difficult collars are. And about five years ago, most departments were moving away from them. It causes difficulty to size them. Uh, they can be painful, they can be distressing for the patient, and there's some concerns about the outcomes. And just for my own interest, who is still using collars in all kids in their A&E departments? So that's nobody. And who is not using any collars actively, so have no collars in the department? So we've got one. And who is doing a little bit of both? So again, a few, and I think that's probably where most of us sit and that people are doing a little bit of both. Because of the concern of putting these collars on and the difficulties, that's why you moved away from them. But the Royal College of Emergency Medicine has issued some guidelines two years ago, basically reaffirming that there is a place for collars in kids. If the kid tolerates the collar, it should be thought about and actively put on. And particularly for those kids who have got a significant head injury or a low GCS, there might be a role in it. For me, I tend not to use collars in a huge part of my practice. I will use it for the kids who are going to be intubated or transferred because I feel it acts as a visual cue for the team. I've seen kids who've been transferred to ICU, went to theater, back to ICU and theater again, and then eventually people have forgot that the C-spine hasn't been cleared. And when they were MRI'd five days later, that is significant 
C-spine injury required intervention. So for me, it can act as a visual cue. So whatever your department does or your team does to make sure that everybody knows that spine isn't cleared, um, then follow it. But I think there is a role for it in some situations. Now imaging. Now imaging is a huge topic in paediatrics. If we look back to our epidemiological data, we can see that polytrauma only occurs in 7% of our population. So what that would say is that only 7% of paediatric traumas should have more than one body site CT'd, and that's simply not the case. Now why do we worry about this? Now why is it a big deal to CT these kids? It's because there's a huge amount of literature out there showing the risk. By exposing these kids to radiation, we're increasing the risk of malignancy, with studies showing between 1 in 500 and 1 in 1,000 lethal malignancy, a 24% increase in the incidence of malignancy from those who were CT'd to those who weren't, predominantly being brain and leukemic processes. Now this obviously worries me, because your immediate goal for that patient is to try and ensure their short-term survival, but long-term you want to prevent these kids developing lethal malignancies in 10, 15 years' time. And often it's our decision to, see, to do the CT because it makes us feel better, in that we've imaged the child completely, we feel that we know exactly what's happening, we know exactly where the injuries are, and that we've done the best thing possible. And these, this data clearly shows us that by doing these traditional PAN scans, it's probably not to the best interest of our patients. Now there's really good guidelines in, um, published by the Royal College of Radiology which give you a template or a flow chart that you can work through. Now we're not going to talk about these in a huge amount of details, but basically to signpost them that they are there and they do exist. And for imaging, we've all moved away from a trauma series and doing it routinely. And certainly there may be a rule for a C-spine or chest x-ray, but doing a pelvic x-ray as a screening process is something that we don't adhere to anymore. Pan scan is essentially the cursed word of paediatric trauma. And if you speak to a paediatric radiologist and ask for a pan scan, Annie Patterson from our department will usually come down and try and hit you um, with some form of sharp implement. So you need to justify every single body part you're imaging. You do not do the chest simply because you're doing the head and abdomen. You need to justify that radiation exposure. And we all know there is no real rule for fast scanning in paediatric trauma because the sensitivities and specificities just aren't there yet. So in this case, we've talked about the fundamental principles of managing traumatic brain injury and what you can do to improve the morbidity and mortality of these patients. We've talked about cervical spine immobilization and the use of collars and some of the principles of imaging. Now we'll move on to adolescent trauma. Now, this case you have a 13-year-old male who's found at the bottom of a cliff. He's fallen 20 or 30 feet, either fallen or jumped, and is found by the pre-hospital crew probably an hour or so later. He is in a very unstable situation. When he was moved, he had a cardiac arrest and he required two um, shocks before he was brought back to Rosk. What they have done is a fantastic job in that they've intubated him, they've put bladder lyos in, they've put tools in his chest, they've given him some blood products, and he'll be with you in about 15 minutes. And they're essentially worried about him from head to toe. So this is your true polytrauma case, a case that will excite some people in the audience and fill other people with complete dread and fear. So for this case, we're going to use it to talk about some of the objectives about adolescence, about when you could potentially treat them as an adult and a kid, about the rules of some of the interventions that you may need to do in adolescent trauma, and then about the principle of permissive hypotension. So adolescents are one of the few cohorts in society that transcend 
um, different practices. So they go from the paediatric to the adult services. And nobody has a huge amount of ownership for them. And certainly locally, there is, we see up to the age of 14 in our paediatric centre, which is very different to the rest of the UK and Ireland. And who best manages adolescent trauma? Now, we've no data yet from our cohort of patients, but the Americans have published a study two, three years ago looking at 29,000 adolescent trauma cases who've attended a pediatric, a major, or an adult trauma center. Now, before reading this paper, I would have put my house on the fact that either the mixed or the adult center would have had better results. But interestingly, this notes that there is an improved survival with attending a pediatric trauma center. Now, this is after adjusting for multiple different variables. And it, while it can't give us a reason why, it clearly shows us that there's something happening in the pediatric centers that is in, resulting in an increased survival for these children and young people. And if we look at some of the TARN data, this would probably go against it, and that the interventions that the adolescents are getting are probably more suited to our adult or mixed departments, in that one in 10 will need a chest strain, one in 10 will need blood products, and less than 0.5% will either need a thoracostomy or a thoracotomy. So very much adult-derived skills. And when we speak about doing those interventions, there does exist guidelines. Now, we're not going into this a huge amount of detail, apart from signposting that it exists. But while you're awaiting on that retrieval team, they may decompensate, so either a blunt trauma or a penetrating trauma. And guidelines exist that state that you should be considering doing bilateral thoracostomies, or if it's a penetrating trauma, that you should be doing a thoracotomy. And what I've put this up here is that your department should be thinking about who's going to do this. You should sim this to know what specialties you're going to need, what the equipment is, and what you're going to do after. Now, permissive hypotension is very much an adult-derived principle. And when we look at some of the pediatric principles that are actually in our protocols, most of them come from adult literature, and we fully bought into them and put them into our protocols. So the things like first cup, less clot, the major hemorrhage protocol, the use of transexamic acid, damage control resuscitation, we're happy to put these into our algorithms based on essentially not a huge amount of literature and evidence. Permissive hypotension first came into the 4A of emergency medicine in 94 with the Bickle paper in which they randomized patients to either to be pushing to get a normal BP or allow them to run a little bit low. And there's been a huge amount of further studies trying to replicate this, which has allowed people to do a systematic review and meta-analysis. And if you look at this lovely forest plot, which I know very little about, but essentially shows that there is a clear favorable outcome with using this intervention. So an adult protocols, permissive hypotension in trauma is actively pursued. They, they aim for a low blood pressure or a lower blood pressure. In paediatrics, there's very, very little literature on this. So the only thing I could actually find was a case report on a patient that had a poor outcome that was allowed to drop their blood pressure. Even updates acknowledge the fact that there is no evidence to base this on. And if you do a literature research on adolescent permissive hypertension, I couldn't find a single paper or reference on what to do or any practices. So basically what I'll tell you is what I would do and what I, after having a lot of discussions with some of my colleagues. So you need to know your population. So we spoke from the TARN data already, saying that we have a high proportion of head injuries. So isolated head injuries and probably more than the result of polytrauma. Now your head injury will trump all others. You want to perfuse that brain. For those head injury patients, you will never accept hypotension. You also need to know the physiology of your population. 
There's data out there to suggest that paediatric patients can tolerate a blood loss of 40% before they drop their BP, compared to adult patients where it's roughly 10%. Now, kids and young people are great at increasing their heart rate and getting a good squeeze in their vasculature to make sure that their blood pressure remains. And we've all been taught in medical school this cliff edge that they go through. When they drop their blood pressure is usually a pre-terminal sign, so I never want to see my paediatric patient go hypertensive or certainly the young ones. And it's not just simply aiming for a figure, it's looking for end organ perfusion. It's looking to see are they warm or cold peripherally, are they getting more shut down. If they don't have a head injury and they're not intubated, can they actually have a conversation with me? Can they verbalise? If you decide to put a catheter in, what is the urine output? And for adolescents, it's really difficult to give you any great advice. And we'll speak to some of my colleagues, they would say they would be pragmatic and that when they approach adult weight, that they would probably use adult principles. Contrary to this is that first study that I showed you, which showed that there was a better survival rate in pediatric trauma centers. So I say for the adult or the adolescent patient that you take it by a case-by-case -case basis and that you look for that end organ perfusion and don't simply aim for a number. Now, for that case, we've discussed a little bit about adolescent trauma. We've talked about the roles of chest interventions and permissive hypotension. Now, in the interest, I've got four minutes left. We're going to rattle through this one relatively quickly. Now, this is a very different case. So this is an eight-week-old male that's transferred up to your pediatric assessment unit for an afibrile seizure. And he's a further seizure in the apartment. And for most of us, seizuring kids are relatively straightforward. There's a clear algorithm which we follow, and we know when we need to contact the retrieval team or escalate care. While you're working this patient up, this is what you notice on the back. So multiple bruises, which changes your differential. So you suddenly go on from thinking about some metabolic or congenital abnormality to thinking about non-accidental injury, which changes everything about this case. So this is the case of unknown trauma, and it's something that we'll all encounter in our lives at some point, either working in A&E, anaesthetics, uh, or in paediatrics. And there's a huge amount of difficulties that come with these cases. So first of all, you've no pre-alert. You think that this is just a simple seizure in a young child, which is never simple, but it changes what you're thinking. There's no trauma team available to you, and you're not in a trauma bay. You could be four or five stories up in your pediatric assessment unit. And probably the most difficult thing is that you actually don't have a history, a true mechanism of injury for these cases. You will not have a parent come up and tell you that I've shook my child violently, or I've punched them or thrown them against the wall. And it's not an isolated injury. If we go back to this TARN data, which I've gone on over and over again, 14% of severe pediatric trauma is a result of NAI. So an, an injury that has occurred either inflicted by a parent or a cure. And it's up to you to complete your secondary survey. And certainly I would say for any kid under the age of one, you should be stripping them off, whether it's an injury or a medical problem. And for those cases that you're really not sure, do a little bit more investigations. And what can you do while you're waiting on that retrieval team? Well, you do your full physical exam. You look in the ears, you look in the mouth, you look in the napkin area. You get an ophthalmoscope and you do fundoscopy to see if there's retinal hemorrhages. Now, these are not pathognomonic of abusive head trauma, but certainly would suggest it. You may think of doing some investigations, either in your department or telling the receiving centre that these will need initiated. And you should discuss with parents. You should say, how have these bruises occurred? What can, can you explain these injuries? Has anybody inflicted these injuries in these child? And clearly document what questions you've asked and what answers they've given, because there's a chance that these may be called if you need to go to court for this case. And this is never going to be worked up by you 
or a single service. You need to extend it. You need to get your multidisciplinary team involved. Think about social services and police, getting them involved to do the work that they're tasked to. And a question I ask my colleagues in the department is, what do you do about the C-spine? In these cases, do you mobilize them actively or not? And out of the six consultants in the department, everybody had a slightly different take on this. Now, there is evidence out there to show that there is some injury to the C-spine. They tend to be bleeds or edema, and usually not bony or ligamentous injury. Royal College of Pediatrics say that for as part of the trauma workup, you will be doing skeletal surveys, and if you remain concerned about the neck, you should be thinking about MRIing them. So if you have a case in front of you, it's something that you should discuss as a group. And as from my practice, if I thought there was an abusive head injury, I would probably immobilize them until either a later time I can assess them and clear their C-spine. Now this is true for all trauma patients and not just the small ones, but pediatric patients lose their temperature really quick. If you live in Northern Ireland, it's usually wet and cold. It normally happens in a row. By the time they come through to you, you're hypothermic. If they're not hypothermic on arrival, we usually strip them off. a and &E is usually a cold environment. They will drop their temperature very quickly. And hypothermia is one of the lethal triad of trauma. So have somebody looking after temperature. Actively put interventions in place to try and maintain that temperature and try and get it up to a normal range. So we've covered a little bit about non-accidental injury and that you need to think about it in these cases. That for my opinion, they are trauma cases and you should try and follow some of the trauma protocols that are out there. Do think about C-spine immobilization in these cases, whether you need to do it or not, and be aware of these kids dropping their temperature. So thank you very much for giving the opportunity to do that whistle-stop tour of pediatric trauma. And any questions, please feel free to ask.